This is a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. Well, thank you very much for that kind introduction, and it's certainly a pleasure to be here. I was just mentioning to Mark that I was uh, in Orlando on Monday. It was 99 degrees, so it's a little cooler here, just a little bit. But uh, certainly happy to be here. So the next uh, hour or so, we're going to talk about what's new in melanoma and give you an update on what I think the important issues are that we all need to know uh, from the clinical side. Um, these are my disclosures, but I'm not going to be particularly product-specific today. So we're going to have a couple of uh, pre-warm-up questions. So here's the first question. Uh, SPF 100 sunscreen versus SPF 50, is there no difference in protection? Does the 100 more protected than the 50, or the 50 is safer because it has lower concentration of agents? Good song. Huh? New York state of mind. Okay, so we'll uh, see what the results are after that. Okay, second question of the four. This is the NCCN, the National Cancer uh, Council. Uh, their guidelines, they suggest removal margins for a 1.2 millimeter thick melanoma is. Okay, and uh, the next question, we're going to give the answers after the talk, we'll give you the before and afters. And all these will be covered in the talk. Tuber genetics can currently be used to assess all except developing melanoma, diagnosis, prognosis, metastatic risk, and response to therapy. Okay. Mm, okay. And now the last one, nivolumab is a BRAF inhibitor, MEK inhibitor, PD1 checkpoint blocker, CTLA4 checkpoint blocker, or hedgehog inhibitor. I wish I had more questions. These are great songs. <laughs> All righty. All right, so we will see the results when we finish off here. So here we go. So we're going to talk about a number of things in melanoma, primarily epidemiology, risk factors, prevention, management, and then how genetics plays a role in diagnosis, prognosis, and disease therapy. So let's talk about, about epidemiology and why the issue is so important. Just to remind you, there are more skin cancers than all other cancers combined in the United States. At the current rates this year, it's estimated there'll be over 87,000 newly diagnosed cases of invasive melanoma in the U.S. Uh, this is actually a, a slide from a, one of the first papers I ever wrote in 1982 I was involved with, where we estimated the lifetime risk of an American developing melanoma, uh, invasive melanoma. And at that point, we estimated it was about 1 in 250. We said it would be 1 in 150 by the year 2000. Well, it turns out we hit that 1 in 150 rate by 1985. This is the current data for 2017, 1 in 50 lifetime chance of developing invasive melanoma. And should that rate of increase continue, it'll be about 1 in 40 by 2020. Now, this is data that's just all 2017 data for the American Cancer Society. 
That was for all comers. This is for non-Hispanic whites. For males, about 1 in 28 risk. For women, about 1 in 44. If you add to those 87,000 invasive cases, other 63,000 in uh, situ cases and do the math, you can see the results about 1 in 25 lifetime risk of an American getting any kind of melanoma, and that's all Americans. Now, I don't expect you to see this chart or read it, but the reality is this is all countries in the world and their melanoma rates. And the point here is that you see every line's going up. So every country in the world seeing the same thing that we're seeing, that melanoma rates are rising. Now, this is, again, data from 2017 to show you that melanoma of the skin is the sixth most common cancer in women and the fifth most common cancer in men, so a significant public health problem. And what's interesting here, here's data looking at the same thing. You see almost all the increase in incidence we're seeing is in older people, older than the age of 50. So we're doing better with younger people, with one exception I'll talk to a little later, and that's young women, the rates are still rising, and primarily, probably, because of due to tanning bed usage. Now, this is kind of our report card, and what you see from this is that for the last 10 years, the number of deaths from melanoma continues to rise. But this year, for the first time, it's estimated there'll be a little fall. So we don't know if that's a one-year glitch or whether that's a change in trend. Hopefully, it's the start of a new trend. But despite that, you can see almost 10,000 Americans will die from melanoma this year, and basically nobody should if we detect it early enough. I'm reminding you again, over one American dies every hour from melanoma. So who gets melanoma? Well, clearly, the people at the top here are at greater risk, but anybody could get melanoma. And the fact is we forget that melanoma is seen in non-Caucasians. Typically, you see it on the palms and soles, but you can't see it anywhere. There's examples of a number of melanomas you see in darker-skinned individuals, the people of color. And typically, if you look at the stage they present in, they present later because of lack of suspicion. And you hear this story all the time where Oh, nobody thought this was bad, and finally somebody does a biopsy on it and sees it's a melanoma. So because of that, the survival is also worse for them because they just present at a later stage. Other risk factors are transplant patients, as you'd expect, are increased risk, about two to eight-fold or so increased risk for melanoma. Um, this is a paper that came out in the JAD last year, and melanoma in pregnancy has always been somewhat of a controversial area. But this data, which is the, probably the largest study most recently on this, said that women who are diagnosed with melanoma during pregnancy or within one year after childbirth have to be followed more closely because they have a seven-fold increased risk of metastasis and a five-fold increased risk in mortality, probably hormonally related. But it's important. This is the new study that's out there. You need to follow these patients more closely. Um, these are psoriasis patients with phototherapy, probably because of PUVA. The PUVA just really raises the risk a little more. But this was a case of showing narrow, in, uh, narrow band UVB showed increased risk, too. So again, those patients have to be followed a little bit for melanoma. There's several papers that show a relationship with melanoma and Parkinson's disease, both of the cells, the melanocytes, and the disease from Parkinson's, the cells from Parkinson's, rather, are derived from the same cells embryologically. So it makes sense there'd be a relationship. Um, coffee, this was kind of interesting. Coffee reduced risk of melanoma, but it had to be caffeinated. The decaf didn't help you at all, so you got to go for lead and coffee. Um, and this is another one with a meta-analysis showing the same thing, basically, that coffee lowered your risk a little bit. Now, this is what I love. These are two studies that came out that showed the same thing, that uh, Viagra users had increased risk for melanoma. This is one. Here's the other one. And bottom line is that nobody knows why. Uh, there's some arguments that there may be an association, but you see the risk is about 1.8 or, or 1.9. The risk of having red melanoma if you have red hair is about a threefold risk. So it's less than that. It may be that these people also have other unhealthy behaviors like lying out in the sun too. So 
Now, what's interesting is where people live, even on the same latitude, makes a difference. So here, this is from Massachusetts, but the same study has been done in Israel, in Australia, where at the same latitude, if you live close to the beach, your risk of melanoma is increased if you live within 10 miles of the beach, probably because, again, you have more outdoor lifestyles for that. This is also a fun one, too. This is one of the third of these studies that show that the taller you are, the greater your risk for melanoma. That's maybe your head is closer to the sun. I don't know. But, uh, but three studies have shown this. It's pretty amazing. I, I know Henry Lim is going to be talking about uh, photo protection tomorrow, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But a couple of key points, I think. Patients ask this. Does sunscreen usage lower skin cancer, specifically melanoma risk? Well. We've really been unable to say this until a study that was done several years ago by Adele Green, who is a melanoma researcher in Australia. And what she did is she took 1,600 people and randomly randomized them to people who used sunscreen every day or used it when they felt like it. She couldn't ban them from using sunscreen. So those were the two arms. She did this for five years and then followed them for an additional 10 years because there's a latency from the time the melanoma develops until it actually becomes clinically apparent. And this is actually the results. For those who used the sunscreen daily, they only had about half the chance of getting melanoma of those who used it when they felt like it. And for, if you look just for invasive melanoma, they only had about one-fourth the chance of developing melanoma. So they concluded from this that melanoma risk certainly may be lowered and almost preventable by regular sunscreen use. So now you can tell your patients, prospective study, regular sunscreen use, in fact, lowers their risk for melanoma. And several other studies have now looked at the same thing. This was a study looking over at all skin cancers published in Australia showing that uh, regular sunscreen use reduced skin cancer incidence by 10 to 15%. But this was a large study done with women in uh, Norway and Scandinavia. And what you noticed here, if they changed their regular use of sunscreen from less than 15 to greater than SPF 15, it turned out that they lowered their melanoma risk by about a third. So pretty impressive data. This is almost 150,000 people. All right, so with SPF, how high is high enough, right? Well, does SPF greater than 50 provide additional benefit? This is a study that we've submitted for publication uh, comparing specifically SPF 100 to SPF 50 in actual use conditions. And this was actually done last spring um, in 199 healthy men and women who were skiing in Vail, Colorado. And they were compared to double blind, split face, SPF 50 versus SPF 100. They were covered up. They were marked left and right. The patients applied them. They cleaned their hands in between each one, skied for a full day, and then came back the next day and were evaluated. So here's the results, and it's kind of interesting. What you see is that you were 10 times more likely to burn on the SPF 50 side than you were on the SPF 100 side, even with actual application following that they applied it correctly. And it didn't matter. It, we measured, we actually weighed the tubes. There was no difference in the amount of sunscreen used between the 50 and the 100. It didn't matter how many times you reapplied it. Um, no, there was a difference still. There was definitely more redness on the SPF 50 side, significantly more, as you can see from the data here. And uh, again, this is the number of applications, whether they did zero, whether they did one, or whether they did two. The subset analysis showed no difference in terms of the number of applications. The SPF 50 was still worse. And uh, this is looking at Fitzpatrick's skin type. And you can see uh, we had type 1s, type 2s, type 3 in the study. And again, the SPF 50 did worse than the 100, no matter what. So the conclusion was this is from this is that the SPF 100 did better than the SPF 50. And in fact, the FDA has been considering putting a cap of 50-plus on sunscreen. Based on this study, it looks like they are not going to put a cap on SPFs because of this study. So you'll see that in press soon. Well, let's talk about management of melanoma. Obviously, the goal is to completely excise the melanoma 
We're trying to minimize the morbidity and cosmetic disfigurement and the functional impairment and the cost. And this is something you will almost never see again. This is what used to happen 30 years ago. We excised melanomas with anywhere from two to five centimeter margins. So they would go with five centimeter margins for invasive melanomas. You obviously can't close those primarily. So this is a split thickness skin graft that was put over. You could see the muscle there. What's interesting, there's some psoriasis on that graft. And it shows you that psoriasis is donor dominant. In other words, the skin that you take it from, it's going to have psoriasis, controls it. But independent of that, you almost never see this anymore. And 30 years ago, you'd see this all the time because of the, the size of the margins. So how wide is wide enough with margins? Well, the margins are getting more narrow over time. And these are the current recommendations for margins. So in situ melanomas, five millimeters, less than one, invasive less than one millimeter, <coughs> excuse me, one centimeter, one to two millimeters, one to two centimeters, and then greater than two millimeters, at least two centimeters. So those are the current NCCN recommendations for this. So now we're getting to a point, well, how narrow is too narrow, right? We keep getting more and more narrow. Where, you know, and if Bernie Ackerman, who was a very well-known dermatopathologist, has passed away a few years ago, he would argue that one cell margins are adequate. But of course, he's right. Unfortunately, none of us have the microscopic vision to see where that one cell margin is. So we have to come up with some numbers. So a number of these papers have come out looking at thicker melanomas and how thin can we go. And this is one that came out about the end of the year last year, which looked at could you go thinner, one centimeter margins versus three centimeter margins on thicker melanomas greater than two millimeters. And what they showed with this, in fact, that here's the data. If you looked at the overall survival, um, there was no statistical difference. But the melanoma-specific survival, oh, did they die from melanoma or not, the wider margins were significantly better than the narrower margins. So one centimeter may be, in fact, too little for two centimeter margins, for two millimeter melanomas, excuse me. And uh, probably uh, this has to be assessed with further studies, but we're probably getting to that lower limit of where the margins can be. So <coughs> this is a, a paper that my fellow published last year in the JAG, excuse me, to see a survey of, of dermatologists and what they were using for margins and you could see that about 62%, uh, about two-thirds, used one five millimeters for melanoma in situ. But again, that means that one-third were not using the recommended guidelines. This is for thin invasive melanomas. Only about six out of 10 were using the recommended guidelines. More were using thicker ones. And this is for thicker melanomas. Again, you can see probably the 1 to 1.9 for greater than that area to 2. Again, only no, people were not going with the guidelines primarily for this. So the conclusion of the study was that the guidelines are only partially followed. And there were large differences in approaches, differences by experience and stuff, and educational opportunities exist, or maybe the guidelines they'd be reviewed if so many people are not following them in their regular practice. So why do we follow patients with melanoma? Well, one of the reasons is, is that they could develop a second melanoma. It was well, worthwhile to look at that. Well, here's a, actually a very large study that was done in the JAD. You can see looking at about 150,000 people, and the idea behind it, these were people that developed a melanoma. And the question was, what was the probability of the developing another primary later on? And was that greater than be expected for the general population? So it turned out that the incidence rate of subsequent invasive melanoma was about 3 per 7 per 1,000 person years. So is that higher than the general population? Well, here's the melanoma incidence for the general population. And here's the incidence for people who've had a prior melanoma. It's about a 15-fold increased risk for getting a new primary. So that's one of the really important reasons why you follow these people. Even if they've had melanoma in situ, the chance of that lesion coming back is very small. 
but the chance of getting another melanoma is much bigger. And this is actually the same data graphed over time. And what you see is almost a 20% lifetime risk of getting either an independent, whether it was the first melanoma was in situ or invasive for that. So because it approached 20%, they need to be followed for their risk of spread of disease from their initial tumors, obviously, but also the risk of spread of disease from um, additional primaries. So these are the follow-up intervals that are typically used. And again, typically less than five years, most people will follow these patients probably twice a year and then greater than five years once a year after that. Now, for thicker melanomas, obviously, you'd be a little more aggressive with that or for other things, but that's too general. All right, so let's talk about the diagnosis in melanoma, which is really important. And clearly, early diagnosis is important. This is just a number of studies. If you compare the 92% survival, five-year, 10-year survival with localized disease and compare that to 54% with regional disease and only a 12% 10-year survival with distance disease, it's very clear that melanoma is probably the most clear-cut case of a cancer where early detection and treatment are critical in terms of its impact on uh, diagnosis, uh, prognosis, excuse me. So let's talk about a little bit about prognosis. And the most important prognostic factor, actually, if you knew one thing about a patient, is their sentinel lymph node status. Obviously, we don't have that. We have the, initially, we have the thickness. But if you knew the sentinel node status, multivariate analysis have shown it was number one. What I'd like to do for the rest of the time is talk to you about what the hottest things are in melanoma and skin cancer right now, and that is areas of genetics, because this is really where it's at in melanoma. And we'll talk about genetics in terms of diagnosis, in terms of prognosis, and in terms of therapy. So can we use genetics to diagnose melanoma? Well, there are a number of studies out there, and this is actually uh, this is uh, the 23 genetic expression profile, or 23 GEP test. And this is a test done by Myriad Genetics, where you send the, uh, the specimen into them. They look at purified RNA. They express the information from that. And they have a mathematical algorithm to assess is the lesion uh, po positive or negative for melanoma. And uh, basically, they looked at a discovery phase. They published a verification phase and a validation phase. I'm not going to go through all the specifics of it. But suffice it to say that the expression of these 23 genes, the degree they are expressed, or put into a formula to predict the association of melanomas. They were identified. They looked at the differential gene expression. The gene signature was then based on performance. And the sensitivity and specificity for melanoma were clinically validated. So this has been done on almost 1,000 lesions overall. And basically what it does, it groups into benign or malignant. There's some in a gray area. So it's not 100% sensitive or specific, but it does help. A lesion is very tough to diagnose. I don't have slides on another group here, which is the DermTech, which actually is in the exhibit area. You could go talk to them. But they use basically a stripping to come off and look at the RNA from this, a tape stripping, and look at that and try to assess that. There were some papers looking at that, too. And I know they have, their, they have some of the papers at the, uh, their booth. So take a look at those, too. I just didn't have any slides for it. So can we use genetics to identify a subset of melanoma at higher risk for developing metastatic disease? So now we're moving on to the prognosis side. And this is kind of interesting. You look at the data. This is the depth of, of invasion, in other words, the thickness of melanomas when they present. And this is from the SEER database of about 200,000 melanomas. And what you see is that about three-fourths of the melanomas that present in the U.S. are thinner than one millimeter. So they're, they're thin lesions, thin invasive lesions. These are just all invasive lesions. So the overwhelming number of melanomas that present are thin, that are invasive. However, because there are so many more invasive melanomas that are thin, in terms of absolute number, 
the greatest number of people who die by thickness are also in less than one millimeter because there's so many more of them. The percentage is lower, but people die of thin melanomas. And you can see about three out of 10 people who die have diagnosed initially with a thin melanoma. So you can't just rule out and, and, and not significantly uh, accept the importance of these. Now, why can that happen? Well, several studies have looked at that. And uh, this is a study done in Australia which showed the same thing, that more people died with thin melanomas than thick melanomas because there's just so many more thin lesions. So a different analysis, different countries, same thing. Um, so when we look at early stage melanoma, again, we look at by stage instead of by thickness, you know, stage localized to the nodes and beyond the nodes, basically. And what you see is this, is that the same thing. There's an overwhelming majority of melanomas when they present are stage one or localized. However, the reality, we look by deaths, look by stage, it's the same thing. The number one group, the largest group for dying from melanoma are localized disease. So again, it's because we just can't detect the metastatic disease. It's subclinical at that point. This, a couple of interesting papers looked at this in terms of pathology. So is it the fact that the pathologists are just understaging these lesions? They're not getting the true thickness and therefore saying they're thinner than they are. Well, this was a particular study that looked at this. And what they found is, if they looked at the lesion, the original read, and then they went to a, a general uh, expert dermatopathologist at a university center who went through and sectioned through the lesions and looked at more sections, it turned out that the overall change in tumor staging was about a fourth. So about a fourth of the cases actually got upstaged when they looked at every piece of it. Any idea what percentage of a typical biopsy is looked at by a pathologist? It's about 1 500th of the tissue is looked at, so 0.2%. So it's a sampling error. You might be missing some of the things. If you look through more of them, they can be found. Now, this was a paper that just came out in December in JAMA Dermatology, which was really compelling. It was out of Columbia. And what they had is they had 33 consecutive cases that were unequivocally diagnosed as melanoma in situ by everybody who looked at it. So then what they did is went, they, they sequenced through them, as I said. They did special stains. They did a variety of other things. And they actually found occult invasive metastatic melanoma in about a third of the cases. So again, by looking more carefully with more staining, things you can't afford to do necessarily with managed care and PATH, but if you do that, in fact, you can see that, oops, I lost that, there we go. You, you can, see, can you guys hear this still or no? Yes? Okay. So you can see that, in fact, melanoma gets understaged with this. So what if there was a way we could non-invasively identify patients who have aggressive disease? And this is another gene expression profile test. This is the CASEL test, the Decision DX test. And this is a different set of 31 genes. It's a profile. What's nice about this test, it uses formalin fixed blocks. So if you have a specimen that's up to five years old, you can send the block in to them, and they'll analyze it. You get the results back in a couple of days. So no special processing on behalf of the dermatopathologist. These are the 31 genes. I don't expect you to memorize them. But the, the point is you can see they're from various things you might expect to have an influence on uh, melanoma growth rate. And it's a typical PCR kind of approach where you have the primary tissue, you isolate the RNA, use PCR to basically uh, amplify this, and you analyze it. And based on the expression of these genes, it divides patients into a class one low risk for metastatic disease versus a class two high risk for metastatic disease. Again, this was found initially for uveal melanoma, for eye melanomas, much rarer, only about 2,500 cases a year of eye melanoma in the US. 
Um, and this is the original data from uveal melanoma, where it showed a marked difference in, in uh, metastatic disease. Actually, this was survival for eye melanoma. You can see between the class ones and the class two, big difference with that. So this is analysis when the first papers they came out to look at this for a cutaneous melanoma. And what you see is this were patients who were sentinel load divided to sentinel load positive and sentinel load negative patients, right? And what you see from this is, again, because there's so many more sentinel node negative patients, again, the absolute number of people who die from melanoma, there are more people with sentinel node negative outcomes who die from melanoma than sentinel node positive. What's interesting in this test is they did it on all the sentinel node negative patients. And on this particular series, 13 of the 15 who ended up dying from melanoma were identified at high risk even though they were sentinel node negative. So it was an additional piece of information to help manage these patients. Now, this is a patient paper that was in JAD about a year and a half ago. Look at different sentinel node positive versus sentinel node negative patients, and you can see overall the sentinel node positive patients do worse. But if you divide up the sentinel node negative patients into a castle class one or a class two, you can see it dichotomizes the outcome dramatically when the overall was about 64%. If you look at knowing divided, you divide it into an 86% versus a 49% group. So again, that additional piece of information helps with assessing uh, metastatic risk. And these are three papers, two that have come out, one that's about to come out, three separate series that all show virtually, almost like the lines of overlaid, right, on them, and you can see amazingly close results showing the difference between a class one and a class two in terms of disease-free survival. So again, we're just sort of scratching the surface on this, and of course the important thing with a test is it's only good if it impacts on management, right? If that's why you do a test to see if you're gonna make a decision. So this is a paper we have in press right now where we gave a scenario, in this case it was a 0.76 millimeter melanoma that was ulcerated on the mid-chest who underwent a wide local excision. Would you do a sentinel node biopsy? Well, 55% said they would, but then if the test came back class one, it went down to about a third. If it came back as class two, about four out of five would do it. So the test impacted on whether or not a sentinel node would be recommended. And the same thing, it's the idea for imaging, you know, would you do outside imaging? Only 30% would initially, drop to 18%, but if it was a class two, that got raised to about two out of three recommended it. So again, this test is becoming impactful as it becomes used more. Okay, let's talk about advanced disease now and how that's treated with melanoma. Now this is a patient of mine who was very proud of this picture, it's on his foot, and he took this with an iPhone. This is a great picture, right, to the quality of the picture. And he was so proud of it, the problem was he waited 10 months after this picture to come see me, all right? And this is, you don't see a lot of these with melanoma, right? Hopefully we don't see any of them all, but this patient, I mean, the prognosis here is probably bad before, but it's really bad here with this. So this is his foot, you can see it was on, and this he had to have a graft put on, that's a graft that was put on for that and moved over with a flap, a combination flap and graft. And then 11 months later, you see that blue dot towards the heel, what you can see, the dot right, this pointer work, I guess, well, sort of. Well, anyway, you see the blue dot there. That's a, a MET, a local MET, in transit MET, and you can see that, in fact, he actually expired from the melanoma after this. So the point is that advanced melanoma is bad, and this is a close-up. You can see what the, a, a subcutaneous MET for melanoma looks like. So people have tried a vaccine approach, and they're not truly vaccines. We're vaccinating people, but the idea behind it is to really stimulate the patient's immune response. And Here's a melanoma cell. So people have tried the monovalent approach, where they try to develop a monoclonal antibody to the antigens on the surface of the melanoma cell. So they take this, 
They harvest the surface antigens. They bring them to the lab. They mix them up. They create the antibodies for those antigens, and they re-inject the patient. And the theory is they should lyse the cells, and boom, the melanoma should be gone. So that's the thought of how a monoclonal antibody would get rid of melanoma. The problem, though, is that when this, you try this, it turns out you're injecting yesterday's news because the surface antigen of melanoma are constantly in flux. So by the time you've made your antibody and re-injected it, you're not really having to the right antigens. So people have tried the polyvalent approach, where what they do instead is sort of make a buffet of the most common antibodies to the most common antigens, and they re-inject those. Well, the problem there is they may not have the concentration they need or enough of what they need, so typically it doesn't have the impact you need, plus you're injecting a lot of foreign proteins, which in fact could cause allergic reactions and other things too. So if this was 2010, this would be the end of the lecture. We'd be done. What's happened since 2010? Well, the whole concept of targeted therapies for melanoma is there. And that has made a profound difference in the way we can treat advanced melanoma. And the other thing is there's more than one target we're finding out, which is also important to, do, to know. Now, again, you don't remember this, but this is just a paper that came out uh, in the European oncology meetings that were at the end of the year last year. These are all the targets that are currently being looked at. So it's not just one target now, but multiple targets that are being looked at and tried to identify drugs to impact on each of these targets for melanoma. So there are really four major groups of melanoma drugs and targets. The BRAF inhibitors, which interrupt the, the BRAF pathway. The MEK inhibitors, which basically are my, this mitogen-activated protein kinase enzymes. The PD-1 blockers, which PD stands for program death. Every cell has a program death sensor in it. The cells should just die. Melanoma blocks that. These can reactivate this. And the CTLA-4 antibodies, which inhibit T cell responses. So basically, you activate the T cells by putting on these antibodies. So I'm going to talk about each of these because they're all important in terms of how melanoma, advanced melanoma, can be treated. First, let's start with the BRAF inhibitors, which are kind of the granddaddy of them. And when you look at a normal amino acid sequence in melanoma, in this one location, the V600 location, there's normally a glutamine there. And with this mutation, in one side, it goes from a glutamine to a valine. That one mutation, what that does is this sticks the sort of an on switch on the melanoma where you have constant growth no matter what you do. So the melanoma is growing quick with this mutation. And in fact, what a BRAF inhibitor does is basically turn the switch off and block that from happening. So it stops the growth of the melanoma. That's how it works, just that one location. In order to be effective, the melanomas have to have the BRAF mutation. So you take melanin tissue from the block and sent to the lab. Uh, sorry, I know I missed that there. It's called a COBAS, C-O-B-A-S test. It's 98% sensitive for melanoma. It takes about two or three days to get it back. So if you're going to use a BRAF drug, you have to make sure that you're in that 60% of melanomas that have the BRAF mutation for this. And this just shows you some of the original studies from the New England Journal around 2011, where the drug is on the top and uh, versus regular chemotherapy, you see it does better. Here's another way for progression, free survival. Again, the drug's on the top. And in the New England Journal, like every couple of weeks, there's a new melanoma article. This was just one on BRAF inhibitors. This is called the waterfall plot. So basically, the lower the bars are, the better the patients did. And you see the two made it down to 100% improvement with this. I mean, unheard of before this drug was there. This at least had a partial response of three-fourths of the patients, complete response in two of the patients. Pretty impressive. But the estimated median progression-free survival, there was a time until the melanoma started coming back, 
was about seven months with this drug. And this is an example of, this is from Jad a couple of years ago. This is a melanoma prior treatment. You see it's shrunk. It hasn't totally gone away. So that would be a partial response. But again, it's doing internal work for metastatic disease. This is another paper. If you look on the top, look at the melanoma cell staining. Initially up here, and then look again at, this is at two weeks of treatment. Look at market difference. Look at the number of METs on a PET scan from over on the left, from right initially, and then look at how the METs have shrunken dramatically in 15 days. And this is a CT scan showing the same thing, where the METs basically have shrunken dramatically. There are a number of side effects that are important dermatologically on this drug. Probably the most important one is about a third of these patients will develop these KA-like squamous cells. And they typically develop them anywhere from uh, two weeks or so out to about uh, 10 to 12 weeks. That's the peak time for developing them. And they get a number of them. They look like just like KAs with it. In fact, this is exactly how they look histologically and clinically. And they will typically get a couple of them to anywhere 10 of them I've seen with this early on in the treatment with this drug. How can this happen? Well, what's happening is you're blocking the BRAF pathway, but you're stimulating the RAS pathway. And these are squamous cells that are BRAF negative. They don't have the mutation, but they have a RAS mutation. So by blocking one pathway, you're stimulating another pathway for other cancers to grow with this. And it basically unmasks the RAS mutations in these keratinocytes because you're blocking the BRAF. So again, there's, these tend to be resistant over time. The BRAF patients, they're developing resistance in two to 18 months with this. So there have been other BRAF inhibitors besides the initial ones that are out there. Dibrafenib is another one. And again, looking at the data, it improved disease progression-free survival. So I, again, I won't go through all the pathways with it, but you see 60% I mentioned have BRAF mutations. About 20% have RAS mutations. About 5% have other mutations. So what's interesting, when you look at these melanomas, if they're either BRAF or RAS positive, BRAF mutations in this series, I said it's about 40%, about 50 60%. RAS mutations are found in about one of five melanomas, but they tend to be mutually exclusive. So if they have one, they don't have the other, and vice versa. And what that tells us is maybe melanoma is more than one cancer, which we'll talk about in a little bit, and different pathways are in effect. And this is another way of summarizing. The BRAF mutations tend to be associated with anevis. They have more of the tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. But the RAS mutation ones had higher Clark levels, and they tended to be in older people. You found them more in lenticomalignant and more photochronically photodamaged areas. So let's talk about RAS biology. Same thing. Here's the mutation. The glutamine, in this case, gets set to, changed to an arginine or lysine. So again, that's that one codon, that one change. And it's the same issue. So if you put a RAS blocker on there, all of a sudden, you have the same thing. You block the growth of melanoma. So there's something called the BRAF paradox. I talked about it in terms of squamous cell, but it's also important melanoma. So I've got these two pathways here, two RAS pathways, different spots on them. So if I put a BRAF inhibitor in there and I block it, I slow down the BRAF pathway, but I stimulate the MAPK-driven RAS pathway. So we talked about this for squamous cells. It's also true for melanoma. And here's what's interesting. When you put patients on this drug, not only do they develop these KAs, but they develop new melanomas in the first several months of treatment. And this was one study done looking at this using uh, uh, confocal microscopy to identify that all five of these lesions in the study, there was no pre-existing atypia, and these melanomas just popped out during early part of treatment. 
This was another study done at Sloan Kennery that was kind of interesting, where they estimated what was the increased risk. It turns out that these patients that are on BRAF inhibitors have about a 1,700-fold increased risk for developing a new melanoma while they're on that drug, and that's why they have to be followed closely uh, by dermatology. So the next group of drugs is called MEK inhibitors, and again, it's just a different part of the pathway that you're inhibiting. Um, Tramentinib is one of the drugs that's there that's used for this. What's interesting with these drugs, they, they block the pathway, but you do not see the increased number of squamous cells with the MEK inhibitors. That's one of the advantages. Here's again, the red is the, is the drug versus standard chemotherapy. Another one showing this is for improved survival. This is, these are in patients who are BRAF positive who still did better with the MEK inhibitor. And uh, again, I'm, I'm not going to go through all these studies, but the most important part, that no increase in squamous cell carcinomas are noted with MEK inhibitors. Um, there's an oral MEK inhibitor, so you don't have to give it an IV, so that also has some value. The most common thing you saw from a dermatologic point of view with these drugs were about four out of five people developed this acneiform dermatitis. It almost looks like uh, steroid dermatitis, very tense papules, primarily on the trunk, but four out of five people get that. So this is the hottest group of drugs right now, the PD-1 or the program death inhibitors. We're going to talk about those. You probably heard about nivolumab. This drug and pembrolizumab get advertised all the time on TV for lung cancer. That's the ones you see for Merck has this, and, and uh, Bristol-Myers has the other one. And you see these advertised all the time. These patients have done quite well with the PD-1 inhibitors. This is called a spider plot. So the lower the arms of the spider are, the better the patient's doing. So pretty, pretty impressive result. Anything that's going down, the patient is improving on. This is one of the original studies that were done with uh, nivolumab in the New England Journal. And look at baseline, that red arrow there. Look at that liver mint, and look how much that shrunk in 13 months. That's, that's pretty impressive for melanoma. So again, a number of these have been looked at, and some other uh, markers have looked at to see, can you use these markers to predict how it was? In this particular case, there's the PD-1, PD ligand one. It's the ligand that the PD-1 receptor is on. If the melanomas were PE ligand 1 positive, then they did much better with the PD-1 inhibitor drugs. And here's actually a graph that shows that, a small series, but you see the PD-1 status. If they were positive, you could see that some patients responded, but if they were negative, basically nobody responded to that. So the FDA at the end of last year now expanded the indications for nivolumab and basically said you could use this not only for BRAF negative patients, but also BRAF positive patients who have failed the BRAF therapy for this. Now, what do you see in these PD-1 patients? Well, again, about half the patients will develop significant skin effects, lichenoid reactions, eczema, and vitiligo are the most common ones. But about one out of two will develop, and they're significant when you see the results of this. Um, Pembrolizumab is another one of these drugs, the PD-1 you hear about, and this one did a little better regardless of the pd one thing, so we'll get more research needs to be done. The last group of the four are the CTLA-4 antibodies, and these inhibit T-cell responses. So again, this is the New England Journal paper on it. Ipilimumab, or IPI for short, is the drug, and what's nice about this one, it does cross the blood-brain barrier, so you could get it if you had brain meds to treat with this. With this. So here, basically, if you have a melanoma, and you have a, a basically a, a receptor coming over, this typically, the melanoma will block the T-cell lymphocytes response. So it basically weakens the T-cell lymphocyte response. By putting the antibody there, it blocks T-cell inhibition. The T-cells can go on and help fight the tumor. So that's what these CTLA-4 antibodies do. And there's a, there's a number of studies this showed. This is by Jed Walchuk at Sloan Kettering. And you see the results that it did a dose-dependent response. This is uh, basically everything that's on the left side that doesn't touch the middle bar 
is statistically significant in terms of improving the survival with all these subsets of groups with it. So important. And again, here's a CT span of the abdomen, which basically shows multiple liver mets. Eight months later, you can see a lot of those mets are gone. You see the shaded areas on the top, I don't know the pointer, but you can see they go away on the B specimen down there. So this is another look at the New England Journal. You see the prolonged survival with stage three melanoma patients, which used to be zero on ipilimumab. You can see they did better over time with this uh, than with placebo for this. Now, there is a, two significant ranches you see with ipilimumab. One is this. It's almost like a photobullous reaction. It almost looks like a porphyria kind of thing. Seen in about 15% of the patients, but very dramatic with this. And the other is this tinea versicolor-like reaction. You see about 10% of the patients. Just looks just like tinea versicolor, but if you try to do a KOH, you don't see anything at all with it. So we talked about these different classes. What about combining them? Is there an advantage of combining the drugs? Well, the answer is, if you think of theoretically, if you had theory A and theory B, and uh, therapy A and therapy B, rather, and you looked at the lower limit, you should do at least as good as the better of the two, and hopefully there's some synergies, and you do better than either one of them with a combination. So that's the reason you want to combine these. So every combination you can think of is being tried. Here's a combination of a BRAF and a MEC, and you see the upper lines there, which are the green and the, the tan ones. Those are the combinations doing better than the single drug alone. This was looking at a PD-1 and a CTLA-4. Look at the difference in that spider plot. Those, those really down at the bottom, they're cures basically at that point almost for that. So I've shown you the four targeted pathways, and these are all the drugs associated with each one of them. So some interesting things about these four targeted pathways. First of all, there's been some changes. So I show you the pathways. There's some new terminology just in the last couple of months because now the BRAS and the MECs are called targeted anti-tumor therapy. We're targeting the pathways, right? And the PD-1s and the CTLA-4s are called immune checkpoint blockade because we're blocking a pathway as opposed to cutting it off, basically. So these are the two groups we now see are targeted anti-tumor therapy you're going to hear about and immune checkpoint blockade. So these are the same way of looking at it. Now, something else that's interesting, when you look at the names of all these drugs, these are generic names, obviously, but what do you see? If you look at the BRAF and the MEC drugs, they all end in IB, right? So IB means for inhibitor. So these are inhibiting growth. That's why they're called IB. They all, all end in that. If you look at the checkpoint blockades, they all end in MIB because they're monoclonal antibodies. So that's how they get their name. So the easy way to remember which group it is by whether it ends in an IB or it ends in an MAB to do that. So now we have these four pathways. Well, guess what? There's now a fifth pathway that's just been identified, the IDO1. And a pocket of stat is the drug, so it doesn't end in either an MAB or an IB. So we've got a new set there. And this is, again, just came out. This was studies presented at the end of last year at the European Oncology Meetings. And what you see is these are people that have never been treated for their melanomas. But again, this is the waterfall plot. The lower, the better. Small numbers, but you can see they're doing quite well on this drug when they added to this. So we talked about one drug. Here's two. Well, if two is good, are three better? What about some triple combinations? Well, let's look at the triple combination. Here's a PD-1 with a BRAF and a MEC. Pretty good on both these small numbers of patients, but you can see the triple combination is even doing better. Here's a different BRAF with a different MEC with a different PD-1. Again, pretty good results for melanoma, right, for this. So you're starting to see this. In fact, five patients in this series had 100% reduction in their tumor burden for a virtual cure. So if we use these things to predict genetics to predict this, can we use genetics to predict response to treatment? And the answer is yes. 
Typically, one of the best predictors of the past for how you do with metastatic melanoma is LDH. If you measure LDH, this is an interesting study that looked at this, and it compared normal LGH to up to one times greater than normal, and then people who are greater than two times normal. And what you see is obviously the higher the LDH, the worse the patients did. However, what you also could see is that predicted how well they would do to the drug. So the combination of the, uh, the PD-1 and the CTLA-4 did better than the individuals. That's the red versus the blue and the green. But again, the higher the LDH, the lower the drug did overall anyway for this. Now this is for CTLA-4s. This is a genetic profile, genetic signature this is called. And they looked and said they identified this genetic signature that would do better. And it turns out from this, look at the difference, again, small series, but the difference in survival with the patients on the top who had the signature versus those on the bottom who didn't have the signature. So you can predict, if you have this signature, that they're going to do better with ipilimumab or with the CTLA-4 with this. And we talked about this before, about the PD-1 ligand and the presence of it. And I showed you this graph before. Basically, if you could identify that and look at these genetics, you can, in fact, see that, which will do better on these patients. This is a paper that just came out in December. And instead of doing that, it looked at CD8-positive T cells. And it's pretty impressive. If you look at the graph on the left, the green dots are the patients that did well. The, blue dot, the red dots are the ones that didn't do well. But the higher the green dots, the better the patients did. So if you look overall, that middle line is sort of an average. And what you see is the, for the PD-1 inhibitors, knowing the CD8-positive uh, status of T cells, you could predict if they would do well with the PD-1s. Not as well for the combination. There was a trend there. But pretty dramatic for the PD-1s alone. So again, these are markers to predict how well these patients will do on the drugs as opposed to just giving it to them. Now, one of the last things I want to talk about is kind of interesting. Are we at the point of a cure for melanoma? Not quite, but we're getting there. And this is the original nivolumab phase 1b trial. So they have seven years of follow-up on these patients. So they started treating them back in 2010, and 20, 2009, actually. And what you see is kind of interesting. Basically, people die out to about three years. But once you hit three years, look at those curves. They're pretty flat. So almost everybody who survived three years lived, kept living for another four years at least for this study. So this is the first time that we have data that shows that people with advanced melanoma on treatment, a subset of them, are actually surviving from the disease. We've never had anything like this before. And this is really in the oncology area, the ESCO meetings are this weekend in Chicago. This is big news because everybody's very excited about this, the first time to see this. So the last thing I want to talk about is melanoma a single disease? I alluded to this earlier. And the answer is in 2017, we call melanoma melanoma. But the reality is, the future is, even the next five years, I think we're going to learn that we've been lumpers with melanoma. And melanoma is really, in fact, multiple diseases. And we're going to have different genetic profiles for different melanomas, and therefore different targeted therapies as we learn more. We're getting so much closer to this. And it's just been an explosion of new treatments in the last couple of years of melanoma after years and years of no hope. Uh, there's a very well-known medical oncologist at NYU who treated just melanoma. And uh, about 15 years ago, 12 years ago, she couldn't stand it anymore. She gave up because she said, I, I, I'm not doing anything for my patients. I'm not helping them at all in any way, shape, or form. And the reality is that uh, she went off to do breast cancer where you can make an impact. Now she's back in melanoma, so we're very happy that she's back. So I've tried to show you in the time we had today uh, a bunch of things about epidemiology, risk factors, prevention, management, and how genetics make an impact for this. 
and hopefully you've got some information. So we'll now ask those questions I asked before, and we'll see how you've changed. <coughs> Excuse me. So again, comparing SPF 50 to 100, what do you think? All the New York stuff, I love it. Okay, we've got the results. All right, good. Somebody listened to it. That's right. And definitely better than before. Here's the uh, yeah, big change in the results. And that, you, this, that paper will be out in, hopefully in, uh, in JAD pretty soon. Okay, next question. What are the suggested removal margins for a 1.2 millimeter thick melanoma? Okay, so 57% up from, okay, so we got a little more, more right on that. And that's, you know, I gave, it was kind of a tricky one because I put it in the middle. You, I, I wouldn't argue if you said one millimeter with that, one centimeter with that, but this. This is also, this is kind of a trick question, but tumor genetics can currently be used to assess all except. Okay, the results. Okay, so the answer is, one should be the right answer. I gave you the wrong answer on that. One's the right answer, because development of melanoma, we don't have actual genes to track for melanoma that are really accurate yet. So that's my bad on that. Third, one, one is the right, you guys did better on that. Sorry, see, that's better, my bad. I gave you the wrong one back. Okay, and finally, nivolumab is a what type of drug? Okay, results. Yes, PD-1 inhibitor, or PD-1 checkpoint browser, rather. That's, okay, that's it. I'll be around if you have any questions, and uh, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed it. My pleasure. This has been a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs, recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting in San Diego, California.